Well, to be honest, I did not expect to be recording this tonight. I may not have mentioned this before, maybe I have, but I am a strong believer in the idea of synchronicities. It's not because I particularly try to believe in it. It just seems like they happen to me over and over again. And uh, today is a really good example of that. So I wrote about this on my Substack, which, you know, how they think of it, having a blog and a newsletter, the same thing, it's a really good idea because you have trouble saying on my newsletter or on my blog. So you have to continually just say their brand on my Substack. I don't know if they did that on purpose, but it's pretty genius. <laughs> this wouldn't be my podcast if I didn't have at least one detour right away. I wrote about this on the Substack, and I'm, tr- I'm going to try not to talk about this very long so that we can actually get into the meat, but this actually, it makes everything kind of, it's the glue that sticks everything I'm going to talk to, talk about together. I got to kind of an existential crisis. God, I hope I don't say that word like 15 times in this episode. But I got to a sort of existential crisis with the podcast. And the other day I sat down to record Tuesday, which is, this is Thursday, so that was two days ago. And it was going okay, I guess. I had like the list of all the books that I read and I was sticking with the format that I had established before. And then about 40 minutes in, I think it was 38 minutes and 40 seconds in, the app that I use to record, to script, it froze. And I know why it froze. It's because this computer that I have, it's it's been on its last leg for a long time. <laughs> It's had a bad battery since the first day I bought it. And because of that, certain things that become labor intensive, just kind of freeze on it every once in a while. And they just updated the Descript app to this thing called Studio Sound, which I apply to usually afterwards is how it work. I record the audio and then apply it afterwards in order to make it sound pretty. Well, they changed it so that you could actually you could do studio sound while you're recording. And I didn't think about the fact that that would be like clocking my computer two or three times more than it would just recording. So I guess what I'm trying to say was my fault that it crashed. Definitely not the script's fault. It's my fault in my aging computer. But the reason I'm telling you that is I kind of got to this point where I was like, I, you know what? I was so frustrated that night. I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go back and try to pick up where I left off. Typically, if something like that happens, which I have lost audio multiple times, I've been podcasting five years, of course it happens. I normally would just pick up where I left off or I would re-record. I've done that before. I've had to re-record episodes because something happened. Sucks, but it happens. I don't want to reiterate this stuff too much because, like I said, I wrote about it. But the thing that happened after that is I 
started to think about what I had recorded already, like that 38 minutes and 40 seconds. And I started to realize that it sucked. I wasn't proud of it. I wasn't, I mean, it wasn't anything awful. It was just, I personally, when I thought back, I didn't go and listen to it. But just remembering what I was talking about at that time, I was bored by it. And I guess that's where the existential crisis comes in. Because I was like, you know what, I just, I don't know. You know, first I stopped doing podcasting every week and I thought maybe it was a time thing. And now I can't even pull it together after a month. Like, maybe I'm just, like, I'm totally stoked that I'm writing now and I'm having fun writing now. But maybe I'm just past the podcasting thing. And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, you know, I, just, I don't think I have anything to say. At least, uh, I guess, if you're not an introvert, maybe this idea doesn't make too much sense to you, so I'll do my best to explain it. But the way that I understand the difference between introverts and extroverts is not about shyness. Because I'm not a shy person. Shyness is like being afraid to speak. Introvert is wanting to speak. And the reason that's different is, you know, one has to do with like comfort and fear, but introversion, extroversion has to do with energy. People who are extroverts and they talk to other people, they get more excited and they get more energy and that they, they could go all night. Whereas an introvert talks to people, maybe gets excited too, but then after like an hour or two is like, like a balloon, just like deflated, like, Ooh, I'm out of energy. I need to go to bed. And because of that, it's not just a social thing. The idea of, or maybe it is, I don't know, maybe I've tricked myself into this mindset of believing that when I sit in front of this microphone, that it is a social thing that I'm triggering that social mechanism within myself. That's how I'm able to do this, to sit in a room and talk to myself with this microphone and the computer screen in front of me and not feel like an idiot. But it does require energy, mental energy. And that's what I was starting to feel is that I don't know if I have the mental energy. And this happens over and over again. It's like a winter thing. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a person who has trouble with winter and fall. When it starts cooling down, it becomes more and more difficult. Like I have less and less mental energy. So I have to exert more to do things. Almost every time I've made a change with the podcast, like a big change with the podcast or like stop doing a podcast, it was because of a seasonal change. Not always but a lot of times and it's starting to get cold and I've been feeling that, that lizard feeling <laughs> like, let me just lay on this rock. So, like I said, I wasn't going to talk about that much, but I want you to understand all that. Like I didn't think I was going to come and turn on the microphone tonight. I honestly had resolved myself to the fact that I didn't know if I was going to record another episode because I didn't know what I was doing anymore. I felt kind of good, like letting it go, like let go of that pressure. And just 10 minutes ago, 
I finished listening to <clears throat> the most recent episode of Tim Ferriss, which I don't even have the name of, but it's something like how I made my show awesome. <laughs> I think it's like how I built podcast up to like 70,000 or something like that. I don't know. It's, it's, it's essentially, it's a conversation between him and a friend and the friend is like maybe only like six months into podcasting. So he's asking Tim all these questions about podcasting. It's a, it's a very comprehensive episode in the side, in the sense that it's almost three hours long. And one of the things that came up in there that stuck out to me was that uh, Tim says something along the lines of like, it has to be you. The podcast has to be you. And then later he says something about, you may not think that you have a personal brand, but you or all of us already have a personal brand. Talk to people who know you and you have a personal brand. Like there's, there's things that people already think about you and associate with you. And those two things kind of like coalesced together for me. I was like, that's the, you know, like the, it has to be you. The you is like that thing. That's just that ineffable thing that like you're always drawn to and that you do because you like doing it. You know, like for me, one of those things is reading. Nobody's telling me to read. I'm not in school. I read because I like reading. But I realized a long time ago, like, I think I've gone through a similar thought process as this where I thought, you know, I'll just do a podcast about books and that didn't work. And I could never figure out why that worked. And I was writing something maybe three weeks ago. And there's this, this phrase that came to me that just kind of has stuck with me. I am not the arbiter of truth. And. I think that's one of the problems with the way that talking about books has always, it's always hit me and why it's always turned me off, even like doing reviews, because it feels like you're telling people, Hey, this is what this book is about. And I never liked that idea. I never liked being the source of truth. Because I don't think that I'm entitled to do that, to be honest. And it just kind of stuck with me, you know, like nothing, nothing other than that. And then while I was still listening to other parts of the podcast, I was just kind of thinking about like, what do I want to do? Not with the podcast. What do I want to do? There's this percentage of my life that the podcast has taken up in a good way. It's given me a purpose, right? Something to do every week. What am I directing myself toward? If I'm letting go of that, then what do I want to do? What am I going to do with my time? And yes, writing is a huge part of that. Working on the, on the sub stack, putting stuff out, trying to get myself in the mindset of that and actually enjoying it because I'm, I've been rediscovering parts of my sense of humor that only come out when I'm writing. It's different than my verbal sense of humor. But what do I want to do beyond that? Like, that's not, 
all of my time. I don't want to just like watch more TV. So I was looking over at my coffee table where usually I have like four or five books. And typically they're books that I want to read, but I'm not exactly burning my way through. So I put them on the coffee table because it's like a physical reminder, like, hey, come back to this one. Because if I'm like really into a book, I'm sure everybody's like this. You don't forget about it. You know, you're into it. You need to know the next thing. Like I, I just finished a book this month called the, is it the amazing adventures of Cavalier and clay by Michael Chabon or yeah, I think it's Chabon. Wonderful book. Couldn't get enough of it. I definitely couldn't forget about it until that story was done. Fiction books tend to be like that, you know, because there's a story involved. So the books on the table tend to be more nonfiction books and they tend to be tomes like big ass books, books that I really like the idea of, and I want to know what's inside them, but I'm also intimidated by. And that's what I said. So I looked over the table. I was like, you know, what I want to do with my time is I want to start reading those books that scare me. I want to just start picking them up. It's not just big books. Like a, a lot of time it is big books, but then sometimes there are books that are they're just dense, like they have a lot in them. And, uh, you know, it's easy to pick up books you can breeze through, like I said. But the books that are difficult. And that's why it's always pissed me off when people are like, there's nothing wrong with putting down a book that you don't like. And I think that's bullshit. Because sometimes books that have something tremendous to say, don't say it in a fast, entertaining, easy way. They're dense and they're difficult and you have to fight your way through them. If everybody just, if all of society just sat around reading the easy books, what will we be? You know, we have to read the big ones. We have to read the difficult ones. It's not easy, but shit, learning is not easy. We don't remember what it was like to learn to read, but if you talk to someone who's an adult, that has to learn to read. They can tell you how hard learning really is and how frustrating. Or how about if you don't know how to play an instrument, you don't know how to play a guitar, pick up a guitar and try to play me a song. And then try to pick that thing up every day. Try to get through the most difficult part of learning to play guitar, which is just learning how to get the fingers on your non-dominant hand you know, if you're right-handed, your left hand, to do those fret things, to push down those string things. Because I guarantee you, that's why most people give up. Learning is not easy because we're expanding the barrier of our learning. You know, there's a, there's a little fence around what we already know. And if we only stick with comfortable things, then all we do is stay in that small space. We never expand. We never grow. Do you remember being a teenager and your bones growing? I know as a, as a boy that went from, I just totally dropped my mouse and spilled my water because the back of my chair gave out. Okay. But do you remember being a teenager as a boy? I went from pretty short to pretty tall in one summer. 
And that summer was painful because my bones were stretching. They were growing, hurt. So I think you have to pick up those difficult books. You have to face them. And I know for the last few years, I haven't. That's what I was like, you know, that's what I want to do. I want to face those. I want to, I want to read that over there. The book in particular that I was looking at is this book called Godel Escher Bach. It's a, as Naval Ravikant says, I think it's about Godel Escher Bach. Yeah, he says, everybody says that they've read it. Well, when you actually talk to people about it, you find out most people have not read it. They just like saying they read it. It's a, there's this book I have, kidding, I think it's called My Ideal Bookshelf. It's a wonderful book. I don't remember the two ladies that made it, what their names are. It's Thessaly something, Thessaly LaRue, Thessaly, I think she's the artist. But it's, it's essentially, I guess it's, it's cold from interviews with notable artists, like writers, visual artists, curators, you know, you get, you get the point. And just asking them like what their ideal bookshelf is, you know, like what are the, there's no limit to the number, you know, not like what are the top 10, what are your top 10 books, but just like, what are the books that. What are your essential books, essentially? And the one of them that does the writing does about a page summarizing what the person said. You know, it's not written as quotes. It's written out. And then the other page is the artist who has drawn or painted. I think it's, she's actually using watercolors, I think, or maybe, uh, yeah, it doesn't matter, but she's painting the books. So you see the spines of the books, like they're on a shelf and each shelf is arranged differently. It's a really cool book, but one book that shows up there a lot in that book, from what I remember is Don Quixote. And it stood out to me when I bought that book, because at the time I was reading Don Quixote and Don Quixote is one of those books that shows up on everybody's like essential list. Not just in that book, like it shows up all the time. People are always like, oh, Don Quixote, Don Quixote. I've read the Don Quixote. I guarantee you, like 80% of the people that say Don Quixote is one of their favorite books of all time, never finished it. It's extremely long. And it's not written modern. Like the structure of the book is not exactly a page turner. So it's just one of those other books that people are like, yeah, I love that book. Now you love saying that you love that book. Poser. <laughs> We're all posers, aren't we? So that's why I want to read the difficult books, because I don't want to be one of those guys that's saying, yeah, I read that. I'd just rather read it. You know, I can, I'm, I'm someone who can say I did read all of Don Quixote and I didn't like it. And I'll probably reread it again. And maybe then I'll see what what some people like in it. Who knows? So as I started thinking about those big, scary books, I had this idea and it got me really excited because it seemed terrifying, but also just invigorating. So we're going to try that out. And this is technically, this is the first, this will be 
the first of this idea. And the idea is I am going to pick up those big, scary books and I'm going to read them. And I'm not going to be the arbiter of truth. I'm not going to read Godel Escher Bach and come in and talk about it in an hour and pretend like I'm giving you a cliff notes summary of the book. Because number one, if it's a big, these big scary books, they're big or they're dense, right? Not going to work. Summary of that is useless. It's got to be different. And I think the difference is that I'm going to do as many episodes as it takes to go through the books. You know, if it takes 20 episodes to go through a book, that's what I'm going to do. And some people might not like that. That's okay. I have to do this for myself. And I might do, who knows? I might do three episodes and decide, nope, can't do this. Who knows? But I think one of the things that I've been feeling a lot recently, which is the reason I pulled back on the podcast, one of the reasons that I've been changing up things behind the scenes that people don't know about, like I'm doing a lot of stuff, more stuff on paper than on the computer, is because I've been feeling this, I, this sense that I'm glancing across things, that I'm skipping like a rock across the surface, that I'm not getting enough, enough depth, that I'm reading books, but like, am I getting them? You know? You ever read a book and then you get to the end and be like, that was good. Someone asks you, like, what was it about? And realize you can't articulate it. It's glance. You know? So maybe what I've been feeling is not problem of time. It's a problem of depth and detail. So by taking as much time as the books will take, it'll be entertaining for me. It'll bring me back. That's the most important thing for this podcast. That's one of the things Tim Ferriss says. If you're going to keep doing it, it's got to be something that you want to keep doing, something that keeps driving you back to it. So my purpose of doing this is because I, I want a reason to push myself to read those books. And I'm going to use this podcast as a way to do that. I'm not going to worry about entertaining and part of that will also mean that the episode's going to be more like this. Like I said, I'm not going to be the arbiter of truth. I'm not coming in to explain the book. What I'm going to do is I'm going to come in with the part of the book that I've read and try to talk it out. There's these great, this is where I'm drawing inspiration from. There's this app called Loom. And Loom, I've never used it, but it essentially... It just lets you record screen recordings very easily. And then it puts them on like a web page that you can easily share. So somebody, I think the idea of it was like somebody working on something on their computer needs to explain it to a coworker. So they just bust out Loom, do a quick little video, send it over to them. They watch it. They can discuss in the comments and then move forward. But what, there's an interesting little subset. Yes, I totally did try to mask a burp there. <laughs> There's an 
interesting little subset of people on YouTube who have used Loom as a way to not necessarily record, I'm trying to find the words to say this, not necessarily to record a YouTube video, but to literally, this is more tech people. Usually it's something they're doing in an app and they're pulling the app out and they're just kind of like talking through things. They're not performing. They're not trying to explain something. They're literally trying to figure something out and recording them in the process of trying to figure it out. That's what I'm drawing inspiration from. And that's what I hope to do, to read the book, to struggle with it, and then come in and struggle with it more with you guys, to learn alongside you, to not be the arbiter of truth. And that's the only way that I can imagine doing it. So I'm not going to edit. I'm not going to, like I dropped, <laughs> dropped the damn mouse and the bottle of water. I'm just going to leave that in. Burps, I'm going to leave in. You know, unless there's something that hugely interrupts, you know, like for example, say I was recording during the day, the mailman comes and the dog barks for like a minute. Yeah, I'll cut that out because that's just, it's not that it's hard to do. And it's not that I'm avoiding it because I don't want to do the work. It's that I want to think about it differently. I want to think about recording it differently. I want to think about this as a brainstorming, which is actually, I kind of touched on this format briefly when I did the podcast brainstorming or brainstorms. So I'm kind of pulling that forward as well. So the first book that I'm starting with is actually, it's not a, it's not a big book, but it is a dense book because it is, uh, let's see how many pages is this. It's another thing. You're going to hear a lot of paper theoretically, unless I'm reading an ebook. This is only 376 pages. It is, it's a book of Ralph Waldo Emerson's essays. And because it's a collection of essays, it's dense. Because uh, each one of them contains an idea. Well, not an idea, more than one idea. That's the problem. And I've had this book for a long time. I read, I don't even remember which one it was. I picked this, this book. I got it for free. It is, I don't know if you can hear that. It has a cloth cover on it. It's an old book. And it has no cover art on the front or on the back. It just has that gold stuff on the side. And it says, Essays at Emerson. And then it's got a whole bunch of, like, fleur-de-lis. Which, they're not really fleur-de-lis, but you get the, the gist of what I mean. Those decorative flora. <laughs> yes. And I believe I got this from a library. Although now that I look at it, it doesn't have, usually when you get a book from a library, it still has the thing that held the library card inside the cover. And this one doesn't have that. But this is, this is an old book. I don't even know. The pages. Have you ever seen rough cut pages where they're not square? You know, one page is longer than the other. That's what this is like. So this is, I mean, they're yellowed cream color, really. But I've had this book for a while and I picked it up one time and I read not even a whole of the essays. I just picked one up. I don't remember. Maybe it was something that I think what was going on is I was trying to, I was struggling with something at the time and 
one of the titles of the essay seemed appropriate. It might've been, was it self-reliance? Nah, I don't think it was self-reliance, but that's the name of these essays. You know, you have history, self-reliance, com compensation, spiritual laws, love, friendship. And I picked one up and I read only a part of it. And this is, this must've been like, say like 11 or 12 years ago. And I've never forgot that part of it. I'm not going to tell you what it was because we'll get to it when we read the book. But because that little bit was so meaningful to me and so long lasting, I was always intimidated to go, to go back to the book. So that's, that's where I want to start. I, I thought it was good to start with a book that wasn't like 1500 pages long. <laughs> but here's the interesting thing. Like I said, I don't know when this book was published because I don't know if this has been rebound, but it doesn't have a year publication year anywhere in it. And uh, I looked in the front and the back. So I picked it up today and I just read the forward by the publisher who I don't even know the name of because the publisher signed it with their initials, DHC. And that's all we're going to talk about today is the forward because the forward had enough for me because I knew I was going to have to explain what I was doing, why I was doing it. And by the way, I still haven't tied everything together because what I'm going to read here goes back to that idea of synchronicity that I had mentioned before. And this, this forward that we're going to talk about is it's literally a page and four lines on the next page. Honestly, I can't believe, you know, like the, going back to the synchronicity thing, I can't believe that I picked this up and read this in 2021 because reading what this publisher wrote in this foreword feels like it could have been written today. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I am going to read these first three paragraphs and then kind of talk about it. Where the hell did I put my notes at? Did I leave my notes somewhere? Let's see. We lay across the room. Oh. So here's what it says. Let me drink a little water first. In this day of mass madness, when Emerson's treasured soul of man appears to be made mock of, by man himself. The observations, placid and profound, of this great humanist seem far removed from the tumult of our embattled civilization. Yet we must bear in mind that he lived and lectured to an immense following during a period of desperate conflict. To those living during the days that saw the brewing and the boiling of the Civil War, no time could have looked more ominous and strife-ridden than our own time. To those New Englanders who read of the disaster of Bull Run, the future must have appeared as perilous and as terrifyingly uncertain as it has to us who have read of Dunkirk and the disintegration of Europe. 
In every age, man has felt himself to be facing problems such as have never been faced before. Values that, when tossed about in the great social upheaval, realign themselves, present new and strange pictures to struggling minds. New teachers are called for to reconcile the present with what has gone before, and new interpreters sought to point out a future course in terms of the past. Yet frequently, though the questions are new, the answers are old. Some principles of thought and of living have an almost incredible gift of survival over neglect, derision, or attack. The door to the new order of things often must be opened by the key that fitted the old. I don't know about you, but that was extremely relevant. Worth pointing out, we're not even reading Emerson yet. That whoever VHC was, whoever this publisher was, seems to be an excellent writer in their own right. So the first thing I want to point out there is, now I know when this book was published. Because he says, to those New Englanders who read of the disaster of Bull Run, which was at the time that Emerson was writing, 1841, I believe the first of the essays was published. The future must have appeared as perilous and as terrifyingly uncertain as it has to us who have read of Dunkirk. The Battle of Dunkirk. Um, did I say Emerson 1941? Hope not. 1841. Because Dunkirk is 1941 or 1940, I believe, actually. I think it said, yeah, 1940, This, which means this book was probably published in 41. Interestingly, he spells Dunkirk with a different spelling. It's D-U-N-K-E-R-Q-U-E. He Frenchified it. Maybe that's the original French spelling. Maybe the K-R-D-U-N-K-R-K-I-R-K spelling is Anglicanized. I'm not sure. Maybe this is the original French spelling of Dunkirk, it would make sense because K-I-R-K is not French. Q-U-E most definitely is. So that means that he was writing this in 1941. And actually, he goes on to say later in this thing that this is a centennial publication. So it's 100 years after and uh, it's not exactly 100 years, but I'm reading this 80 years after he wrote it. That was a very interesting kind of, it's not really a synchronicity, because if it had been 100 years as well, that would be weird. But just these epochs between Emerson writing and then this publisher writing and then me picking it up and those epochs being about the same length is just kind of very interesting. And it kind of, I don't know if it hit you as profound that this person, just just thinking about the fact that this person is writing this while World War II 
was unfolding around them. It wasn't over. It was just happening. It was unfolding. They were seeing it. They were reading of the news of Dunkirk. It made me really, I mean, that's the thing about physical books. Stroke the pages and smell them like it, it's connected me to this book in a way. And I don't, don't think that I am a paper snob because I, most of the books I own are uh, ebooks because I just, I don't have room for that many books. But it has to be said that a paper book is easier to have an emotional attachment to. And I can see this book and I can think like this book was printed. Well, what was going on in Europe was still happening. That's the kind of thing that ties you to a book forever. And then, like, we're just reading them forward. In every age, man has felt himself to be facing problems such as has never been faced before. Yeah, think about that. Think about the, the shit that the news is telling us all the time. And they were telling him that in the 1940s. And they were telling him that in the 1840s. It reminds me, I had a teacher once tell me that every generation seems to think that they invent sex. <laughs> like they're just, they're the ones that figured it out. Who knows what everybody was doing before, but they certainly weren't doing that. It's this kind of uh, recency bias that we all have. And every age, man has felt himself to be facing problems such as never been faced before. Comforting and terrifying, isn't it? Upheaval shakes up values, that's what he talks about. Upheaval is, it shakes up our values. And that shaking up of the values means that when the pieces filter back down, they combine into new combinations, and that's where new ideas come from. But in order for us to get through that, he says that we need teachers to reconcile the chaos with the safety. Reading my notes here, not quoting, but we need teachers to reconcile the chaos with the safety and assumptions that we held before. That's essentially what he's saying. He says, what are his exact words? Let's see. New teachers are called for to reconcile the present with what has gone before. So what he's saying is that we had assumptions about the world and the way that the world functioned before upheaval. And that we, we built our values upon those assumptions. And now that we face upheaval, we face chaos, those assumptions are called into question. You know, those assumptions are things like safety and security. And because of that, the values get shaken up as well, because the shout, the values are, the, the foundation of the values are those assumptions. So if we are to get through it, what we need is teachers who can look at the assumptions we had in the past 
and look at what's going on now and make sense of that. Was everything we believed in the past wrong? Was everything a lie? Is this chaos the only thing that is real? And the teacher's job, the, the new teacher's job is to say, no. This is what we believe from the past. This is what's happening now. And this is how they fit together. This is how we make sense of it. This is the story because we always need a story. I think that's what he's saying. And then he says, he goes on further in that sentence to say, and new interpreters sought to point out future course in terms of the, fact of the past. So these interpreters, these teachers, they need to explain to us these new ideas, the new ideas that we need to move forward. Because the upheaval is shaking things. Ideas are new, but the ideas are new. All we know is the assumptions of the past. So you can say, here are the new ideas, but the new ideas, they don't make sense to us. So we have to understand those new ideas because the new ideas are the way that we move forward. So you think about the new ideas as like a, like a map, right? If I hand you a map, it's great. It'll get you where you need to go. Except if I don't know which end is north and which end is south, which end is, you know, what's west, what's east, then the map is useless. So that the interpreter's job is to orient us so that we can move forward. Now think about now. This is why even the, the, the upheaval stuff, it applies to all the political stuff going on, but it also applies to what's going on with this whole fear of jobs and technology and AI and what's going to happen. There's so many people saying that AI is going to eradicate the truck drivers and all the, all the clerks in the grocery stores and where are all these people going to get money? And this is why people discuss universal basic income and all of these things because of this terrifying future. And I believe personally that a lot of the upheaval that happens politically comes from this existential fear of the future because nobody has interpreted the future. Nobody has pointed out the path to the future. So everybody's terrified and that creates upheaval. He goes on to talk about ideas and he says that essentially that some ideas, they survive. These old ideas, you know, you don't throw them all away. Some ideas, some survive. Some of those values will endure. And those ideas and values that survive the upheaval, they are the keys that open the door to the future. They are the things that make the future visible and understandable. So these teachers and these interpreters, the way that they can allow people to see this future that they can't see yet because the ideas are this, you know, it's like looking at an image that is blurry. The way that they do that is by taking those ideas that have survived and using those to build the quote unquote, the key to the door, because once the door is open, now they can see through the door, they can see that future. 
They can understand what it is and then they can move forward towards it. And when they move forward towards it, they can let go of that fear. And when they let go of that fear, the upheaval goes away. Now you think about in 1840s, the civil war was preceded by an existential crisis. Why did the civil war happen essentially? There's a lot of reasons, but the two main things that are tied together, slavery and the economy. And essentially what happened from my understanding, once again, I'm not the arbiter of truth, but my understanding was when slavery was outlawed, the South went through this existential crisis that we just talked about, because as long as it was morally to do what they were doing, they had built the whole economy of the South around having slaves. So now they're like, wait, if we don't have slaves, then what's going to happen to everything? Their whole structure had built on this, this whole horrible institution of slavery, but they had built the whole structure on it. So they freaked out and what did they want to do? And what does everybody do? No matter whether you think you're right or wrong, what do you do when like the structure is being pulled out from under you, you fight like hell to keep things exactly as they are. So what did they do? They went to war. So the war, the upheaval happened because of an existential crisis. No one had shown them how the future could exist without it. And don't misunderstand me. There's obviously racism involved in slavery. <laughs> That's not what I'm, I'm not raising that out of the equation. What I'm saying is you can also see in it that it was fear that led to upheaval. And that's, that's basically all I'm trying to get out of what this guy seems to be saying is that fear leads to upheaval. There are other reasons for upheaval as well, and they happen together, but that's one. And you look at World War II. Why did World War II happen? And I'm not an expert on World War II, not that I'm an expert on Civil War or anything else, but it being my own country, I know a little bit more about it than I know all of the reasons that preceded the preceding causes of World War II. But from what, what I understand about the pre preceding causes of World War II was essentially that when World War I ended and the Germans were, you know, they were quote unquote, the, the bad guys in World War One, you know, they lost too. And Europe kind of, from what I understand, kind of, they were harsh with them and they kind of dumped on them. And because of that, even all the way to the 1930s, their economy and their country was still limping along from the, the causes of that war, you know, whatever whatever losses they had from the war. And on top of that, these sanctions and other things that were put on top of them. And that's the thing that Hitler fed into. That's why Hitler rose to power because, you know, this idea of the, the strong German nation, because they had been weak for so long and the country was in shambles. So here's this promise, you know, the people and, he used all of this idea, these mythologies, 
to fire them up. We've seen this recently in politics. People who see they could, there's, there's certain people and politicians, they could smell fear. And, and they know that if they can grab onto that fear, they can ride it to the top. And it's crazy. You know, this, this Civil War, World War II, now all connected in that way. You know, I just picked up this book out of the blue. It's weird, you know, like I had the idea I was going to do this, and the idea was sparked by looking at Godel Escher Bach. But I didn't pick up Godel Escher Bach. Picked up this book. That's why I have trouble. I know it's not rational, but I don't always have to be rational. That's why I have trouble dismissing the idea of synchronicity. But that was that, that upheaval. That's, that's why... Hitler rose to power because he put himself in the position of the interpreter. He took the values, the old values that people were still clinging to during the upheaval, and he used them to build a picture of a false future. And what happened? They followed. They let go of their fear and they followed. So it can work in good and positive. I didn't even, I wouldn't have thought about that. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that's what he's saying. We've just kind of squeezed that out. And it's like that when you're squeezing a lemon, you get most of the juice out, but then you pick it up and you squeeze it one more time. You get two or three more drops out. And that's what that is. So for us, I guess that means that our way out of what we're feeling now is to find those keys, to find those ideas that endure and use them to like, find teachers, find interpreters who can use them to explain the future to everyone who needs it. That's, that's the other synchronicity that I found about this. It's just this idea of finding the good ideas that survived from the past. And this project is about picking up books and trying to understand the ideas in them. So. This is kind of, I guess this is I don't, what it's going to be like. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I've never done this before. We're going to learn all of that. Get all of this together and pick up. In. <laughs> it's going to be rough. It's going to be raw. It's just going to be like this. If you can't deal with it, I totally understand. You probably didn't make it this far. Anyways, for those of you that did, th this is for you. You know? The people that are interested in that, that were interested in that whole conversation, this is for you. It's not for everybody else. It can be if they want it, but you know, that's not, I'm not trying to be like elitist. I'm just saying, I know it's going to be a limited interest and that's okay. Because I just want to, I want to, I want to do what I did right there. I want to take these things in, in a book like how easy would it, be, would it have been for me to either pick up that book and skip that forward or to pick it up because it's only a page and four lines to just read it, move on to the next one, move on to the next one. It's very easy. It's what I do with most books in most of my life. But to take these books and know, to approach them knowing that they're dense and difficult and to just 
downshift. So <laughs> I hope that we can get more than one page in each episode because otherwise this is just going to be a multi-year book project about this one book, which I'd be fine with if that happened. I don't care. And that's, that's just the way it is. I don't care. I want to read the book and do it that way. I imagined with the essays that maybe it can be one, maybe a couple essays per episode. Who knows? We'll see. When we get to those big books, that's where it's going to be really interesting. Because some of those books, the chapters are like too much to do a whole episode on. I'm just going to get to a point where I feel like I can, until there's a, a cohesive thing to tackle. What I mean by that is if I'm not going for, for the whole chapter, you know, like a chapter usually has like an, even in nonfiction tends to have some sort of arc. Might not be a story, but it has an arc. Like I'm making a point and then the point ends here next chapter. If the chapters are too big, I'm going to look for like, maybe there are many arcs inside. And if I can't, then I'll just have to come in and say, this is where I got, this is the next 10 pages or whatever, the next 50 pages, whatever. We're going to explore it together. So if you stuck around this far, awesome. Thank you. Thank you for being interested in, uh, something that is. I guess, uh, fairly esoteric. Yeah. If you want to follow me on, you know, my Substack, stack, want to get the newsletters. I'm doing this thing where weekly on Fridays, I'm sending out, it's called debatable ideas. And it's just the ideas that I've run across in blogs, newsletters, books, whatever during the week that seem debatable. I guess is the best way to say it. What I mean by that is they're not ideas that I necessarily agree with. Sometimes they are. They're not ideas that, uh, that they could be anything. Things that I see truth in, things that I look at and go, that's ridiculous. Things I look at and go, that's plain old wrong. But I'm just taking them and I'm putting them in this newsletter. And I'm sending it out. And what my hope is that people will see them and politely discuss them in the comments. And I think it's it's... Like I said, I don't want to be the arbiter of truth. So I'm not prefacing any of these things. I'm literally just presenting the ideas and seeing what people make of them. People can decide for themselves. I said over and over again, in this podcast and probably every other podcast I've done, I'm really interested in how we think, but I don't like the idea of telling people what to think. So just presenting ideas, that's the debatable ideas. And then I'm trying to really break myself out of the mold of blog or newsletter or whatever, and just literally use the Substack as a place to write and explore, explore ideas and send them out whenever I feel like it. So there's that Friday thing that's consistent and then everything else, who knows? I'm trying to discover, this has been like so, super serious, but like in the writing on there, there's a lot more sarcasm. And a lot more me just having fun. So it's a different side. And if you want to support the podcast, because yes, we're going to have lower listenership guaranteed. But if you want to support the podcast because you're into this and you like this idea and you want to support as well, support whatever's going on in the Substack, do it all together. There's a premium subscription for Substack. 
And it's, I think it's a, I have it set at the lowest that you could possibly put on Substack, which is $5 a month, $50 a year. There's also another plan where you can pay more if for some reason you want to be super generous. That option's there as well. The people who become paid subscribers have access to the semi-literate book club. And the semi-literate book club is separate from this. The semi-literate book club is me taking another book once a month and pulling out like the 10 to maybe as much as 20 ideas in the book and presenting them just like I do with the debatable ideas. Put the direct quotes into the book club and then let the discussion happen below. It's all new. So if you want to be like a founding member of the book club, it's a good time to do it because discussions not going to happen with me being the only one there. All right. That's, that's the path forward. Like I said, if you've stuck around this long and you're not into this, it's okay. Pull the ripcord and jump out of the airplane. It's cool. I am totally content and happy with this plan right now. And uh, I'm more than willing to do this by myself. Because, as I said, the purpose here is to just learn. Or as uh, the mysterious VHC says, to, uh, to find the keys for the new future. Bye.